You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. In a world where film studios have pillaged every young adult novel, DC'd every comic book series, and Frankenstein every silver screen monster in search of the next movie mega franchise. Two nerds. Two movies. One cinematic universe. This is Jasper. And this is Randy. We watch two movies. And Jasper is definitely Mr. Pink. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm Mr. White. Mr. White's cool. Cool as a cucumber. Actually, I'd be Mr. Black. And the the one guy said there is no Mr. Black because everybody wants to be Mr. Black. I get it because that'd be cool. I was kind of laughing about that part because I was like, I would I would want Mr. Black. So that's exactly his point. Everybody wants Mr. Black. The movies we what what what, what did we watch, Jasper? We watched the nineteen fifty six version of the Killing, and we watched Reservoir Dogs from nineteen ninety two. That's right. Welcome to season three, a.k.a. You say it, Jasper. I don't want to say it. Taryn Threno. Yeah, so we're kicking off season three uh, in which we are going to go through every Tarantino movie. Every movie directed by Tarantino. We're going to throw in four rooms later on. Uh, we're going to match up True Romance, which he wrote at some point in time. We're going to have some guests this season. It's all about Tarantino and also... Of course, you know, it's going to be every episode will be a Tarantino movie and then something else because we we still got to create our interesting cinematic universes. And Tarantino is actually super easy to match. Like Tarantino movies are super easy to match other movies with because his movies are like just full of homages to other movies. So that brings me to, for example, this episode, as Jasper said, we also watched The Killing from 1956 a Stanley Kubrick movie, and the reason we paired it with paired that with Reservoir Dogs is because Tarantino has been quoted many times as saying Reservoir Dogs is his version of the killing, not like a direct remake, but he was uh, it's his his take on a heist movie inspired by the killing. Which one do we want to talk about first? Let's talk about the killing first, which I've got I up think, and up and ready to go. I think that's a good decision. Let's do it. So this is the 1956 The Killing, which was directed by Mr. Stanley Kubrick. So I know somebody who once called that guy a hack. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. It was written by Stanley Kubrick, Jim Thompson, and Lionel White. Uh, Lionel White wrote the uh, novel. Mm-hmm. It stars Sterling Hayden, who plays Johnny Clay. Colleen Gray, who plays Faye. Uh, Vince Edward plays Val Cannon. J.C. Flippin plays Marvin Unger. And Joy Sawyer played Michael Riley. So, okay, you did not react to that at, at all how I expected. But uh, <laughs> this is the first Stanley Kubrick movie we've covered on the podcast. And I had to jump in because before, this is well before we even started recording this podcast, like GCU in general. Jasper found that he enjoyed picking random iconic directors and calling them hacks just to get me riled up. And Stanley Kubrick was definitely 
one of the ones that he targeted pretty hard. Hack, that is huh? true. I, yeah, yeah, well, okay. I just didn't like A Clockwork Orange. That that was just a creepy movie for me. That's a creepy movie but, for uh, everyone. It's not a pleasant movie for yeah, anyone. It's not supposed to be. <laughs> well, I think it's also just because I've watched it so many times because of Billy. So. Okay. Well, okay. I'm assuming you've never seen this before. The Killing? No, I have not. I actually have not seen this before either. I had it. I had possession of it, and I've been meaning to watch it for a long time, and I just never got around to it. I'm just going to – I want to throw it to you because I want to get your thoughts on it because this is a very different kind of movie than anything we've covered on the podcast so far. Uh, we've covered older you know, movies as old as this, but I think this is the first kind of film noirish type movie we've done. And just tonally, it's – I don't know. It's very different. I, th- I feel like this feels older than some of the other older movies we've covered. What did you think of this, Jasper? I was actually pleasantly surprised with this one. At first, I was like, oh, this is just, just going to be tough. Because kind of like when I watch Reservoir Dogs, you're just always kind of just like talking about the event. But we actually kind of get to see it in this one. It was just really crazy, like how they had so many stories. But there was still like the one, like the guy and his wife. And she's kind of like not really into him anymore. And. You know, it's, everybody's got kind of the reason why they're in the job. Mm-hmm. And so I think that uh, Kubrick did a, a good job of, like, basically keeping the different stories, but yet and this, why they're all doing it pretty consistent. Yeah, this was his third movie, I think, but his first with, like, a full cast of professional actors and stuff like that. No, I think Kubrick did a great job. I was actually a little concerned at the beginning of this because – it starts with that narration, and that is by far my least favorite thing about this movie. The narration, I don't like. I don't like it at all. It's super cheese, and I mean, other than the look of it, you know, some of the, other than the setting, kind of the look of the film sometimes, for the most part, I think the film looks really good. I really like the shots. Cinematography is awesome. The blocking is awesome. The lighting is awesome. For the most part, there's a couple scenes where it's like, well, that's obviously some stock footage or some like kind of rough outside footage, second unit stuff. And then there's a couple scenes that are a little disappointing. But for the most part, the majority of the movie looks great. And the storytelling actually seems like the way it's 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 not a completely linear story. It jumps back in time and follows characters from different points of time during the day leading up to the heist and stuff. Uh, That kind of seems like ahead of its time in a way. But that narration is super dated and it sounds, I, I would, was not super keen on the narration. So I was really worried at first, the fact that it starts with a bunch of very stock look, stock footage looking, uh, horse track stuff. I was like, Oh boy, Kubrick, <laughs> like this is Kubrick, but it actually quickly gets into like, it's quality. It's well-made. And I, I think the story is interesting. There's a lot of characters and a lot of elements at play. There are certain characters that they follow closely, more closely because they have are more integral to the plot. Like you mentioned, the guy and his wife. There's also the, the guy that's kind of the, uh, I don't know what you'd call him, the ringleader, I guess. Yeah, the, the main guy pushing it. So it focuses on a couple of them a little bit more, but it bounces between all of them, like most of the movie. And I thought that was really well done. It comes together really interestingly. And then just not to do too many comparisons since we haven't, you know, we just started talking about this. We haven't got to Reservoir Dogs yet. 
I do find it interesting, the differences. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of differences. It's a totally different movie. But I can see where Tarantino pulled aspects of it. Reservoir Dogs does a lot of that. Yeah, it's about a heist. But it's kind of like, whereas most of this movie is pre-heist, most of Reservoir Dogs is post-heist. And this movie actually focuses on and follows the heist. Like, you go through the heist from pretty much everyone's different perspective. Like, they all have a different role to play. And whereas Tarantino, like the heist really is like totally ignored. That's the part of that story in Reservoir Dogs you don't get. This, you actually get that whole story. I like the consistency between like the actual job and the stories surrounding the job itself, but also like the stories about why the people are in it was really good. One thing I really liked is that it explains the heist in bits and pieces but for the most part, there's a lot of it that it does not tell you. You see them like setting, you see, I need to get, I need to get characters names. Who's the main guy? Johnny Clay is the character's name. Who's kind of the ringleader, kind of putting it, pulling it all together. He, he's like one of the only ones that has like the complete picture of what's going on. Most people know their little part, but not necessarily the whole thing. And I like how the movie approaches it in that. You don't get the whole thing until you watch it play together. You see him lining up the parts. You see everybody like getting prepared. Some of it is explained. Again, there's some of that awful narration kind of like sets things up. But even with that awful narration, there's a lot of it that the viewer is not privy to until you watch it play out. You can, you know, kind of make a guess at like why, why he wants a guy to go start a fight and why he needs a guy to shoot a horse, shoot the horse at the, at a certain time, which is one of my favorite bits or subplots. I don't know what you'd call it. Like you can kind of guess why, but then like it doesn't totally spell it out until you just watch it play out. Another thing too I like about this is like the lead guy doesn't act like he's like smart. Like you you know like in most heist movies like the ringleader is like always like smarter than than everybody there. Kind of like I almost want to say like what was that baby driver where Spacey? Uh, what's his name? Kevin yeah, Spacey? Kevin Spacey's character is like the smart dude and kind of basically calls the other people dumb. Yeah, he's constantly con- he's he's Kevin Spacey. He's just condescending the whole time. Yeah, but in this one, he's like, I'm getting these people because these people know what they're doing, and you know, I trust them to get the job done. No, yeah, I really like that character. I mean, everyone, almost everyone in this movie, they're all criminals, right? Like, there's not a lot of super like likable char- characters, but there's a few that I think are likable, and I really like this guy. I like his performance because he's he's not condescending. But he's very straightforward, but he's also like a fast talker, (laughs) a fast talker in that he spits everything out at the other characters quick, just because that's the most straightforward, efficient way to get it across. Like he's not trying to talk over him or nothing. He's just very that he's just that straightforward. Yeah, I thought he was cool. Yeah, he's straightforward, you know, and everybody's got to do their part. And I kind of also like kind of somewhere in the middle of the movie where it kind of seems like that guy and the guy with his, his crazy wife is going to kind of like turn on, on the job. Oh yeah. But you know, he kind of still, still does his job. That that's another thing. Tension. Like this movie is excellent at how it ratches it up tension. It does it in several different places. And they, but like you mentioned with that guy and his wife, George is his characters is the guy, the character that happens like that. He has that turn where he's like, you know, he's kind of a pushover, but then he becomes visibly like agitated and like you think he's going to double cross him. And that turn happens just before like we actually go through the main 
meat of the heist. So during this whole time when the heist's going down and you you have all these other elements causing tension, there's the guy with the gun, you know, that's supposed to shoot the horse, the guy who's actually physically got to go in and steal the money, like while all this other there's you've got all these different elements adding tension to the like heist when it's happening and this guy. So the whole time you're like is this guy like really going to turn on him? Is he going to like completely flip and screw the whole deal up and cause an issue and he he doesn't really initially for the most part right his wife i i think george is not a great character like he's a fine character he's not a likable character he's such a pushover to the point where it's kind of ridiculous he's so weak like compared to all the other guys in the heist like he's like you know they're all strong and I thought he was going to be like the first to die, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, he is super weak and his wife is super manipulative and transparent about it. Like he's weak and he's super dumb, this guy, but it also kind of works. Cause you're on the one hand, you're like, well, why would Johnny clay have this guy in on the heist? Well, for one, he's kind of like their inside man, but literally like it makes sense that he would still use him because literally all the guy has to do is go and open a door. He just has to open a door at a certain time. That's all they need him for. So I don't know. It still works. Like you can have this guy who's an idiot and who's pretty weak, but like it still makes sense because you're like all all the dude has to do is open a door. He's our inside guy. It's kind of almost like they did make him like he's like an integral part of the of the story, but then he's like all he's doing is opening a door. You know what's funny though is in the overall plot, he is one of the main characters. He's like one of the main players. He drives. Because outside of the heist, well, it's all revolves around and and weaves through the heist. But in the overall structure of the movie itself, the overall plot, he's one of the most important characters. It's pretty much him and his wife and everyone else. Like everyone else. Because he is the reason, you know, minor spoilers. We can get into full spoilers in a little bit. But minor spoilers, things don't eventually go well. And he's the number one reason it doesn't. It's his fault. He told his wife about the heist, and that was the main mistake. That was the first and, for the most part, number one, like, almost only mistake in the whole thing. But it was kind of fatal to the overall plan. Full spoilers. He basically got everybody killed. We we have full spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Almost everyone. Full spoilers. Yeah. Just about everyone dies. And if they don't die, it doesn't go well for him. It did seem like that he was the weak guy, but they try to make him that strong character at the end. But he still, he still screwed up pretty bad. <laughs> okay, so I want to mention a couple of the characters, or a couple of characters and like character moments that I think are my favorite that really stuck out to me. Uh, we mentioned Johnny Clay's like a pretty cool guy. Uh, I don't know that he's actually a cool guy. He's still a criminal, but he seems like a cool guy, right? I liked his. I liked the way the actor portrayed him. I liked his demeanor. His girlfriend. <laughs> has some ridiculous lines. She's only got, she's, she pops up in the end and kind of towards the beginning when it like is bouncing between various people and kind of giving you a little bit of their why, like you said. Again, this is all at the beginning when I was still like really worried about this movie. So her character is 100% like dependent on this guy, on uh, what Johnny Clay. She's not involved in the actual heist. She's going to run away with him after he performs the heist. It's clear she kind of knows something's going. She knows like there's a heist or something going on, but she's not really involved in the heist. She's like the only character that's not, but she, she has this line is basically because Johnny Clay had been in prison at some point 
and she's kind of pleading like with him, I don't want you to get in trouble again. I don't want you to like, you can't, you can't leave me alone. And her line is quote, I'm not pretty and I'm not smart. Please don't leave me alone again. End quote. <laughs> I was like, what? I'm not pretty and I'm not smart. Please don't leave me alone again. Wow. <laughs> so that made that me sounds laugh. like almost like a Forrest Gump line. <laughs> it's it was ridiculous. Pretty. Also, she was pretty. I don't know what the heck she's talking about. Right. Not that that matters, but obviously she's concerned about it. My other favorite character. There's two characters that are completely like there's the so- central group of people involved in the heist, and then there's two pretty out there characters that are totally separate that Johnny Clay approaches individually because the the idea is they're not supposed to know anything about the larger plan in case they get caught. And there's the guy that starts the fight in the bar, who's basically a distraction for the security guards. And then there's the guy, who, the gunman, who's supposed to shoot a horse, shoot the horse uh, at a certain time. And I think they those were kind of both interesting characters. I, the, the guy that starts the fight was kind of interesting. Super hard to understand. He kind of mumbles through this super thick accent to where I had to run it back a couple times to like try to hear what he said. However, the gunman, I was fascinated by. I thought he was a super interesting character. I really like how the actor played him. He was just like, maybe not confident, but yeah, confident, but mostly he just seemed comfortable and just like no matter the situation, except for when things got tense. I don't know. He seemed like he was just like there having fun, chewing the scenery. And uh, I thought he was super interesting. Right. And I liked how his whole, his part of the heist played out. Again, another part of the tension. Like he's got to shoot this horse at a certain time for everything to go right. Although at that point, I don't think for the viewer, it's exactly clear why. Uh, But he talks to the security guard, who's a black guy. He's the only black guy in the movie, I believe. Remember, this is 1956. Talks him into letting him park in this certain parking lot, which he needs to be to get a clear shot at this horse. And there's some tension there, and then he kind of like more or less sweet talks the guy into letting him in. Well, then the guy, the security guard, he's not trying to pester him, but he keeps coming back to the guy's car, walking out to the guy's car to like, you know, hey, I'm sorry I was being a jerk, whatever. You're a nice guy, and he's just trying to be friendly. And that's going this whole time that he's trying to, like, he's waiting for the time to hit so he can pull out his gun and shoot the horse and then get out, get out of there. But he, he's got the security guard coming back, and uh, that really is effective at building tension. He ends up getting right. the, he ends up getting the the security guard to to take a walk by calling him the N word, and that was super uncomfortable. And from a character point of view, it looks like the guy wasn't happy that he had to do it. Not that he had to do it, but he was trying to get rid of the guy as quick as possible. I don't know. I like how it was played because it kind of seemed like. It's not something he would normally do or he'd want to do, but it was like last emergency, like break glass in case of emergency situation. Like I need to get this guy out of here now. It did seem like they, they kind of made him like cringe when he said it, which is even weird for that kind of time because that, you know, well, that's exactly it. Like it's there, right? It's still a big thing, but he still, he says it, but he still has the reaction. And this is, it is kind of surprising for the time. Not that they just, call people the n-word in in old movies all the time but he still has that reaction to where it indicates to the audience that it's wrong that he did that and the character feels like it's wrong that he did that um so that in itself is kind of interesting however i think that comes to bite him 
because that guard, once like the guy takes a shot at the horse and is going trying to get out of there, that guard is Johnny on the spot with his gun and a horseshoe, a cool, cool, lucky horseshoe or whatever, kind of is that guy's downfall, but he ends up getting shot by the guard. So he immediately, that guard is there. Which, I mean, yeah, if he didn't get rid of him in the first place, the guard would have been there. But if he hadn't have made the guard angry, I don't know that the guard would have necessarily been there on the spot like that super quick. Anyway, one of my other favorite scenes is the actual stealing of the money or whatever. That creepy like hobo mask that the guy wears looks super creepy. Some of the artwork you can see online for the cover is like a black and white picture. It looks kind of uh, like sketched or something painted maybe Yeah, of him with the hobo mask and the gun, like super cool artwork. But I liked how that all played out. He's got a crooked cop there. Like I just liked how all the parts come together. It was pretty well executed. One of the parts that I feel like the filmmaking was a little, or the cinematography was a little kind of weak was the fight where they had the guy fight the security guards. They did that kind of cheesy, like goofy speed up the film a little bit. And he's like spinning in a circle and they've got, he's got like six guys like it. Tonally, it was a little weird. It was just a little weird. I like how that was like kind of like his main role was just to fight these guys, like just to get in a little bar fight, basically. Oh, yeah. And that, and again, him and the gun guy know nothing of the plan. They're just paid, like the guy, uh, Johnny Clay, is paying them a bunch of money to not ask questions and just go do this thing. Go there, shoot this horse, or go there, start a fight. That's all I need. And they're both, basically, they're both there for distraction. 100%. But I like that he's got these two outside guys that not even the other the core other core heist guys, they don't even know them. They don't know who they are. So I'm I like that aspect of it. And it almost seems like the guy that opens the door knows what they're there for, but almost is like kind of surprised. Like when that guy starts the fight, like almost like he didn't know who was going to start the fight. That's how much he left them out. Well, and he even starts a fight with one of the other guys involved in the heist, who at that point had already done his job, right? He was just there to sneak in a gun. But yeah. he even starts the fight with that guy, and that guy doesn't even seem to know. I'm sure he got wise to it after it started, but let's talk about the end. After the heist, there's basically a huge... I was super kind of surprised by this. Almost all of the characters, with the exception of Johnny Clay and his girlfriend, and then the one guy's wife, they all end up in the meeting spot, in the this apartment they're all supposed to meet up after to split up the money which is basically the warehouse and Reservoir Dogs, right? But this is an apartment. Johnny Clay's kind of running behind, so they're all getting nervous. So this guy, sh- this other guy and a goon shows up, and the guy is someone who is sleeping with the weakling guy's wife. She's, like, let him know about this. Uh, you know, that's revealed earlier in the in the movie, but they show up, and that's kind of where everything goes bad. There's basically a big gunfight, and just about everybody in the movie dies <laughs> in that scene. And it's super quick, too. Like, it goes down fast. George, the weakling guy, gets shot. He's not dead. He goes to confront his wife, and that doesn't go well. He shoots her. That's his moment of, like, growing a backbone. He shoots his wife, and then he dies. And that leaves Johnny Clay, the sole survivor of this heist. So he's trying to get out of the country or wherever with this massive bag of money. It's ridiculous. With his girlfriend, he's trying to get out of the country, go to an airport. And I wanted you to talk about that last scene because you'd mentioned it yesterday uh, or this morning when we talked about 
the podcast. Like he kind of has like said it where he he's trying to get through airport security or whatever or whatever they called it at the time. Like you know they want him to check his bag and he finally he's trying to get it to be a carry on bag. You know it's a huge suitcase full of all the money that they got from the heist. He wants to bring it on the plane and then the the airline's like no 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 you know you can't do that it's too big. So after you know arguing for like ten minutes, he's like fine you know check the bag. And then, you know, they're watching it go across the tarmac on a on a baggage carrier and it falls off off the. Um, well, it's even like ridiculous. There's this lady with this little yippy dog who's freaking out. The yippy yeah. dog gets away, runs out onto the tarmac. So the baggage carrier thing swerves to miss the dog, misses the dog. But the bag falls off. Yeah. The suitcase. Sorry. Go ahead. And then and then the suitcase falls open. And then since it's a prop engine plane, you know, that. It's throwing all this wind around and all the money just goes everywhere. The guy's face is just, it made me laugh, but yet I felt so bad for him, even though he just committed a crime. It's kind of amazing. The shot is fantastic and it holds on that for a long time where it's just like a cyclone of money all over. They must've had just so many huge fans just off the you know side of the frame because it's it reminded me of... Those uh, money tubes that people get in, the money blows around, except it's outside and it's this huge, like, you know, it's an airport, it's a tarmac, this huge space, this huge set, I'm assuming. And it's just money everywhere swirling. It was kind of amazing. But you're right. The look on his face, he gets this look like he's his body's shutting down. Like, and it seems like it's his girlfriend that like tries to kind of start pulling him away. Like, we need to go. We need to go. We need to get out of here. And then there's more tension. They're trying to get out of the airport at that point through the walk back through the airport. And he gets outside and basically, yeah, he's going to be arrested. And that's the end of the movie. And it's just like, wow, all of that for just like nothing. It went about as bad as it could. Everyone died except for the one, the you know, the main guy. And then he had to watch the money get blown all over the airport. It's pretty crazy. You just felt his pain, is what like I I was kind of saying is like you just felt what he was feeling like at that moment. And it's funny too, like it's funny from a like just all that work for nothing, all that work for nothing. Poor lady, he's she's gonna be alone again, and she's not very pretty and not smart, <laughs> right? Uh, so yeah, going into this, I didn't know what to expect because I knew it was an early Kubrick movie. On one hand, it doesn't have some of the hallmarks of some of his later movies. I always think, I mean, his shots aren't always symmetrical, but Kubrick always has a certain, like, cinematic eye. But I would say being Kubrick, like, you can see it in this a little bit. You can see just kind of the way it's crafted and kind of, um, at the time, what I'm assuming were pretty bold decisions, like uh, jumping back and forth in time a little bit. The narrative structure seems a little bold. But this movie also definitely inspired a whole bunch of filmmakers. Tarantino, obviously, especially the jumping back and forth through time to tell the story. I mean, you see it in Reservoir Dogs. We might get into that a little bit, um, but you definitely see it through a lot of his other movies, but Pulp Fiction being an extreme case. But also Christopher Nolan, There's you can totally tell Nolan took a lot of influence from Kubrick and probably this movie specifically. In the trivia when I was looking it up that the narration was the insistence of the studio that actually Kubrick did not want that narration at all. 
I had heard that too. I had heard that too. I didn't know. I don't know if it, I didn't know if it was confirmed or not. So I didn't mention it, but I had heard that too. And it makes sense. It makes me think of Blade Runner, which had the exact same issue. The narration isn't necessary and it does give you some information like specific times, like at 10 4 AM. So-and-so is here. And it's like, but we don't need that information. Like, I get that it's jumping around in time. Just go and follow them. Like, I feel like it, the, I feel like the storytelling would have been a little bit better if they didn't have it because we don't need it spelled out for us like that. But the studio probably got scared. They're like, this is weird. People are going to be confused when it jumps over here and it's like earlier in the day. Well, people, yes. people will get it, you know. I just think it wasn't really needed, but. I agree. Like I said, that's my least favorite thing about it, and it hurt the movie quite a bit for me. I'm curious about your star rating, sir. Well, if you want me to go first. I do. So actually, like I said, this is this is a movie I was really, really into. Other than the narration, like the narration didn't, like I would, I would say didn't bother me a lot. I just kind of zoned it out and was just kind of listening, you know, when the characters talked. But um, just the way that the story was told and with the way that the characters were built up and like kind of like you said where the tension was there i gave this one a four out of five stars oh nice okay you've probably seen my letterbox rating of this haven't you i have not actually okay uh, i want you to guess don't look i want you to guess then what do you think i'm gonna rate this i want to say three out of 3.5 out of five what okay Yes, I give this a 3.5 out of 5, which for as much as I praised it feels a little low, but the narration heard it, like I said. I feel like the first half is, it's not weak, but I struggled with it a little bit. It takes a while to get going. Not like it it's... a little slow. Well, yeah, I mean, it, paced, it paces okay. It's just a lot of the stuff that happened in the first half, I didn't care. I was like, this is not really getting me on board. And once we got into the heist, I was more on board. But then there's 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 stuff where it felt a little, I don't know. I kind of had to go with my gut feeling after finishing it on the rating on this one. Because when I analyze it and I look at it, as everyone just heard for the last 30 minutes, uh, if not longer, you know, I have a lot of good things to say about it. But that said, there's a lot of stuff that kind of dates it. And there's stuff I didn't like. And yeah, I'm just going to have it go 3.5. I mean, obviously, it's not a terrible rating, but... I don't know that I'd watch it again right away. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a bad movie. No, I agree. I don't think it's bad at all. I think it's good, and I would recommend it. I think it's worth a watch. I think maybe I was hoping for a little bit more. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So, from one heist to another. The next movie up is our Tarantino pick of the episode. This is Reservoir Dogs from 1992. This is written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Also, uh, Roger Avery is credited credited as a writer. And the overview, according to the MovieDB.org, a botched robbery indicates a police informant, and the pressure mounts in the aftermath at a warehouse. Crime begets violence as the survivors, veteran Mr. White, newcomer Mr. Orange, psychopathic parolee Mr. Blonde, bickering weasel Mr. Pink, and nice guy Eddie unravel. Uh, this has got a whole bunch of people. Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, 
uh, Lawrence Tierney, Randy Brooks, Edward Bunker, Mr. Blue, he's hardly in it, Quentin Tarantino, and other people. There's more people. But those are the main, those are the main, that's the main cast there. Reservoir Dogs. I've seen this before. <laughs> more than a couple times. So, uh, Jasper, had you ever seen Reservoir Dogs before? Um, I, I've seen bits and pieces. My brother was a huge fan of this movie and always tried to get me to watch it. But, um, this is back when I, of course, when I was younger, but no, this would be the first full watch of it. It's been a little while since I watched this. I have, I feel like I've had this on a couple formats, but I have this super cool, like collector's edition DVD of this. That is the DVD case itself is like a matchbook. Like it's like a huge matchbook. You open it up and it's got the disc in there. And then that mm-hmm. goes inside of a metal container, a metal case, which is a gas can. It's pretty cool. But uh, what did you think of this? I like this one. I The only kind of like thing I have is I wish there's a little bit more of the heist of it. You know, I get what I mean. I get why he kind of left it out. But uh, I like this one because there's just so much going on that you're like, you, you, you're almost on the same, like, freaked out level that they are. Like, because you're like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> like, you know, or what went wrong or what happened? Like, you're stuck in, a, like, a, a total tension-filled, like, what is going on? Why is why did it go south, you know? To, to touch on that point, and I don't want to totally derail your initial thoughts here, I think this is a super strong debut for Tarantino, like, as a director, because you're right. It feels like there's a lot going on all the time, and it's super tense. Dude. It's just people talking the whole movie. I mean, there's a couple little bits of action where you get a little bit of the aftermath of like the immediate aftermath of the the heist. But for the most part, it's all tension and urgency built through dialogue, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and then they kind of are like almost turning on each other, like right off the bat. It's like, why, why, why did this happen? And, you know, who let this guy in on the job and. You know, I don't trust this kid that's, you know, bleeding out on the floor. I kind of was always always laughing, too, that the guy is just laying on the floor the whole freaking movie. The whole movie. Tim Roth is ridiculous in this movie. Like, I don't know if it's a good performance or not. I've never been able to figure it out. It's memorable, though, I guess. That's the main thing. It's not a bad performance, but it's, it's such a weird decision. Like... Tim Roth's choices, Mr. Orange, when he's shot and he's freaking out, he's like a weird cookie monster. <clears throat> Mr. White. Uh, like, it's so strange. Man, I actually, okay, so I actually really enjoyed this rewatch. It's been, uh, it's been a, a number of years since I watched this. And I have seen it a bunch, so part of me was like, uh, I don't, like, I like Reservoir Dogs. I just don't know if I want to watch it again. But then once I started it, and it got through that first scene. I'm like, okay, nope, I'm back on board. I understand. I, I understand the appeal. Tarantino, you know, his his other movies does have like some weird action, crazy action moments and stuff, but he's got such a way with dialogue scenes and characters, and they're almost always characters that you hate. Like they're just disgusting characters, but he's got such a way about filming those scenes and the way he writes dialogue that just kind of grabs you. And I'm glad I'm kind of I'm glad the first opening scene doesn't go on 
longer than it does, but it's just like a scene of nothing. Like it's just them talking at a table about ridiculous stuff, but then you're kind of into it. And then it does that weird slow-mo where it's not an actually shot in slow-mo, but it's like that jerky, like it's just they slowed the frame rate down. Mm-hmm. Such interesting decisions that like, I don't know, it pulls me, it pulled me right in. I highly enjoyed this rewatch. And it was kind of cool to go through the trivia and see that they did this, they did this movie on a very low budget, you know. It makes total sense because, dude, there's like a handful of sets. Most of it isn't, takes place in a bare bones warehouse. I mean, it was kind of brilliant in that respect. It can be a low budget. It doesn't need to be a huge budget. It's very straightforward, basic in that respect. There's a lot in it that makes it feel like a low budget movie. And it kind of makes sense if it was kind of a low budget movie, but even the sound, it's clear they didn't necessarily like over, you know, go back and do ADR, like overdub everyone's voices later with better recordings. A lot of the sound in the warehouse sounds like it's recorded just in the warehouse. There's a lot of like reverb in a way that you wouldn't necessarily hear in a movie um, where they polish the sound more. It's kind of rough and it sounds like a B grade movie, but I'm fairly confident that was probably a creative decision. And I think that's another reason why they didn't poke in on the on the heist. You know, for one, it's, it was probably a creative decision. But two, you know, they probably didn't have the budget to do. Keeps the price down. Yeah, keeps the price down on, on you know, doing the heist, actually. So what do you think of the characters? Are there likable characters here? For me, most of them are pretty despicable. What do you think? Well, it's funny because, like, I felt bad for the, the guy on the floor, like, right off the bat. You know, they, they're, they, they make him out to be like a young kid, you know, and he shouldn't have got involved. And, and then you have like that psycho, uh, which I believe was Mr. Blonde, right? Yep. And Buscemi's character was just, he basically was letting the plot out as he was talking, mm-hmm. but no one believed, him, you know, one of the things that was funny with the characters was like that first fight they have over the names. And he's like, I'm just going to give you the names. You just shut up. You know? Oh yeah. I like the old guy. Oh, what's his name? Cause there's nice guy. Eddie is his son. Oh, Joe Cabot is the character's name of the it's Lawrence Tierney. Uh, the, like the boss, the boss put, mm-hmm. putting everything together. Chris Penn always plays a weird dude too. Nice guy. Eddie was weird. Oh yeah. This is a kind of a Tarantino thing and they're all criminals. So here's the thing for me, the, the closest to a nice to like the like most likable character is Mr. White, but Tarantino makes none of them likable. They're all super racist. Yeah. Full spoilers. I mean, Tim Roth is doesn't really do the racist thing. And he's supposed to be the good guy. Although, I don't know. For some reason, I feel... I don't feel like he's likable, you know? His situation is interesting. But anyway, they're all super racist. And it's really interesting that we go from a movie from 1956, which we had a little conversation about them dropping the N-bomb. But it was very clear that it wasn't okay. It wasn't the character being racist. It was the character like... Trying to get him away. Yeah. Like, yeah, the character was not okay with it. The movie did not seem okay with it. It was, it was a thing. And then there's this movie where it's Tarantino kind of doing, you know, he kind of gets away with a lot for being like, well, it's like an exploitation movie. It's what they used to do in the exploitation movies. They're all super racist. There's a lot of racist stuff. There's a lot of racial slurs. There's, it's pretty hardcore, and the, like, there's very few characters that escape it. They all drop the N-bomb, casually, often, and 
I don't know that the movie gives it a. It's not like the movie passes it on. It's like this is okay. It's just really weird to go from a 1950s movie to a 1990s movie to where I feel like the 50s movie handled racism. And sure, maybe it didn't have to be there at all, but it was. And it handled it so much better than Tarantino did in this movie. But again, we're watching criminals. They're a bunch of bad dudes. They're not supposed to be good dudes. They're not supposed to be likable. They're bad dudes and they're all gonna they're they're all paranoid and they're gonna screw each other over. But man, I don't know. It's weird. Uh, that was one thing that was a little surprising because I always remember people Tarantino gets that a lot where people are like, especially the N-word, he, all of his movies. It's in there a lot. Right. For whatever reason, it's in there a lot. So he gets a lot of guff and like, you know, whatever white guy here. I'm just like, okay, but watching this, it is a little weird. I could see people being upset about it. Yeah. I mean, especially the car ride where they're just like rattling off. That's exactly it. And that's like Mr. White really looks bad there because he he says a lot of stuff in that to where it's like not even Mr. White, man, like the. The criminal with heart, the criminal with like a, a sense of like a, a code drops the end bomb several times in like really bad derogatory ways. So and I think that was like the thing in Reservoir Dogs to still show that he's still a piece of like, yeah, you know, yeah, for sure. No, you're right. They're all just different shades of crap, man. Different shades of crappy. Right. <laughs> They're all still criminals and still, you know, degenerates. But I think it was very portrayed very well. Like you're like, oh, this dude has heart, but then no, he's still he's still. One thing I like is how on point Tarantino. Like this is his first. I mean, he directed some short stuff before, but this is his first feature length directorial. This is a directorial debut. How on point with his like image he had through a lot of his initial you know, through his early movies, he had that certain color and font that, that yellow font, yellow, orangish font, and just the music just on point. And he carries that through his next couple of movies with some variations, but I don't know. I'm just amazed at how Tarantino it is right away. It's not like Kubrick where you've got, you know, there's two older movies and we watched a movie that was good, but it still didn't feel like Kubrick as opposed to Tarantino. I'm not comparing. Okay. People, I'm not comparing. I'm not saying one is better than the other. <laughs> I think they're totally different shades of great. But Tarantino is Tarantino from the get-go. Like, this movie is just pure Tarantino, and all of his movies are. And he's never really deviated from that. And it's kind of amazing just how on point with his vision this movie is. Like we said before, you know, you can, you can tell it's low budget, but he did a very good job with the budget, you know? I mean, I think that really adds to it. I think that's, I think it's perfect. I think it needed to be, it should have been, and to do it in any other way would have fundamentally changed what the movie is. You know what I mean? I also think this movie did, I could be wrong. I don't have that information in front of me. I'm assuming, I mean, this movie was kind of a big deal. I think this movie did extremely well and is probably part of the reason he was able to like, Pulp Fiction is pretty out there. And I think that how well this movie did, this is kind of like him proving to the studio right off, like, oh, this guy can make a hit. This guy can turn something interesting that actually is still commercially viable. 
because I don't know the budget on Pulp Fiction. We'll get into that next episode, but I know it was higher than this. And uh, this movie probably bought him quite a bit of a leeway with his future movies. Let's hit some of the iconic stuff. For for one, the music. It's got this this the 70s music, kind of music that Tarantino likes to hit quite a bit in his movies. And it's got a somewhat clever device to like work that into it, where it's, what is it? Billy's something Billy's super sounds of the seventies or super seventies sounds. What is that? K Billy, the radio playing the the seventies songs is K Billy super sounds of the seventies. And, uh, Stephen Wright, you know, he's got that very monotone kind of voice, but he's plays K Billy, the DJ on the radio. That's where a lot of the music ties in to that certain, that certain time period of music. I don't know. That's great. What did you think, Jasper, of, uh, I guess the other iconic scene from this movie is Michael Madsen, Mr. Blonde, being crazy on that cop, the cop torture scene. That was, you know, that was, that was pretty gruesome. You know, it was kind of extremely violent. What got me, though, was um, Michael Madsen's, like, terribly against violence. Oh, Yeah. So he had to actually really push himself to to even do that part. He plays this cold, cool psychopath super well. And yeah. I think that's really what makes it bothersome is he's having like his character. His character's having a good time. And he cuts the ear off and you don't even see it like right away until he like pulls it up and he's like talking to it. He's like, can you hear me? And it's like, whoa, whoa, dude. That was a bad joke. I kind of even sat there too. I was like, holy crap. Like, you know, that scene is still, still parodied in stuff to this day. Seriously. Since I, and I just watched this uh, last week. I rewatched this last week, I think. And in between watching this, you know, this most recent time. And now I seen it parodied in something just recent, just like brand new. I don't remember what it was. It's like a animated thing where, the character is doing that certain walk, that little dance that he does and the music playing. And I was like, whoa, like what? This came out in 92. So we're t- coming up on four years shy of 30 years ago. This is still referenced in, like in pop culture. It's kind of amazing. Three years, correction, three years shy of 30 years. Bushimi, this kind of launched Bushimi, which I'm glad because he's such an interesting actor. I like Bushimi. I think this and Fargo really kind of like, not that he's like a big leading man in stuff, but everybody knows who Steve Buscemi is now. And he pops up in stuff all the time. And I hope he's getting a lot of work, but it seems like he can do, like he gets to do like kind of odd stuff, which is fun. But this and Fargo, I think really launched Buscemi out there. He's weird, but I've always liked Buscemi. I think that's everybody. He seems weird, but he's likable. Even when he's, I mean, his character in this is not likable. He's arguably one of the more off-putting characters, even though technically, like, most of the other characters do far worse things. Like, their actions are worse in this than his. But he's just got this kind of nasty way about him. Also, Mr. Blue is in the opening scene, and then you'd never see him again. Right. I thought that's interesting. And Tarantino... No offense to Quentin Tarantino, but he's in the opening scene. And then the only other scene you see him is when he dies. And it's also kind of like good. 
he's not bad, but he's so Tarantino, it takes me out of it. You know what I mean? Right. And he apparently he wanted to play Mr. Pink. Really? Yeah, which I thought would have been kind of weird. I but mean, he said Shemmy did a way better job. Oh, yeah, I don't doubt that. But if he's going to cast him as another character, Mr. Pink probably would have been the way to go. In pairing this up with The Killing, I was looking at other movies. I kind of wanted to pair it up with City on Fire. Uh, except I couldn't find I don't have a copy of it. I'm sure it's out there. I probably could have rented it on some der- digital service, but it's not. It wasn't as easily accessible, and I had The Killing already. And this is, and the killing is the movie that Tarantino acknowledges is like a prime influence on this movie. However, City on Fire has scenes like wholesale scenes like lifted for this movie. That whole like Mexican standoff situation at the end. I mean, not that the Mexican standoff scene is totally unique, but it there's like an almost identical scene and the scenario is very similar in that other movie in, in city on fire. And it plays out almost identically. Like there's, there's kind of wholesale lifting of stuff. I I'm curious. I'm curious about it too myself. Like I've only seen bits. I haven't seen the whole thing. So I almost paired that with this, but again, we went to killing star ratings. I'll jump first since you went first last time. I'm going to give this five stars, which is actually an increase over my last viewing, which I had apparently given it four and a half stars. I'm going to go ahead and bump this up to a full five-star movie. I think I think it's fantastic. And some of the stuff that, for whatever reason, kind of sagged for me on previous watches, which is mainly when it goes into Tim Roth's backstory, I didn't like so much in the past. But this time, I kind of, I don't know why, but I kind of appreciated it more. And uh, yeah, overall, I think it's great. I think it's well done. It's well made. I like the aspects of it that do feel cheap. I think it adds to it. I don't. I wouldn't say it's necessarily perfect. There's some stuff that doesn't need to be there. Some of the like, I get some of the racist stuff. They're criminals, and it's like exploitation movie. I kind of get that, but it's definitely seems heavier handed than need be. And really, the characters are all despicable. But I don't think they're supposed to be anything. But but you're hard pressed to find a likable character. They're all dirtbags. Right. That said, again, I just think it's really well made and a completely solid debut movie. You know, directorial debut movie. How about you? I am going to go again with the the four out of five. There are some parts for me that was a little little slow and then kind of like unanswered questions I had about it. But knowing the budget and kind of his first outing, I think this is a very solid movie. I'm giving it a four. Four out of five. Hey, Jasper. So the movie studios are looking for a heist movie. It's been a while since they had a good hit with a heist movie. So they went they went about scooping up some heist properties like The Killing from 1956 and Reservoir Dogs. Comes from a pretty good pedigree of filmmakers. How would you combine The Killing and Reservoir Dogs into one cinematic universe? I'm going to go ahead and jump in first because I feel like mine's pretty weak. You know what? I'm getting better ideas as I even say it. Okay, so here's my cinematic universe, Jasper. Also, if you don't consider, like, if you don't consider the fact that, like, a lot of Tarantino's movies all kind of take place in the same universe, this will be the first Tarantino sequel. So here we go. The Killing and Reservoir Dogs are separated by a healthy little chunk of time. And The Killing, pretty much all the characters die. Except... Old Johnny Clay. 
Johnny Clay doesn't die. He does go to jail for he does a pinch. He he does a, he does a he does a dime in the prison. But when he gets out, he's going to play it smart this time. He's going to create his little criminal empire and he's just going to he's going to make the plans and he's not going to take part in them. He's just going to he's going to orchestrate them. He's going to organize them because that's that's what he's good at <laughs> and it separates him from the like the, you know, the risk of getting stuck in the stuck in the uh, in an airport full of money flying about. Of course, you know, his criminal exploits were pretty well known, so he had to change his name. So he changed his name from Johnny Clay to Joe Cabot. Started a family. Had a had a kid named Eddie. Nice guy, Eddie. <laughs> so yeah. So uh, the the main character or the character that survives from the killing does his prison time. Comes back out. Faye, his not pretty and not smart girlfriend. She waited. She gave him a son. Nice guy, Eddie. Yeah. Unfortunately, as Reservoir Dog shows you, his story ends in Reservoir Dogs. However, there's a lot of story in between there. In between, like, some of the connections he made when he was in prison after the killing. Heists he pulled after he got out of prison. There's a lot of story that could be told there. It's going to be told by high-quality directors in a very non-linear narrative structure we're going to jump back and forth through time you know there'll be moments when he's you know it's his younger self in prison his older self doing gig doing jobs how he met uh mr white all of that it's all going to be there so basically it's going to be the story of of johnny clay slash joe cabot life story there you go that's my cinematic universe <laughs> Well, <laughs> that was the starting of mine, actually, was he turned into Joe. But the the caveat that is different to, to that one is that uh, Mr. Blonde was the guy that shot the horse. He survived his wounds, did some time, you know, <laughs> but didn't do too much time because shooting a horse is not really a crime. But so he brings... I cannot believe we had the same starting. It's like the only so he brings. It's the only logical place if you're gonna like make a direct like connection. Yeah, but and then but Mr. Blonde is the guy that shot the horse. Surprises wounds. Doesn't do much time. Doesn't you know? Real time he does using a firearm in city limits probably. But then I was gonna. What I was trying to do was you know of course Joe gets killed. But what I was gonna do is that the cop Mr. Orange survives somehow even though he's been bleeding out for an hour and a half and then he he starts his own criminal leaves the force starts his own criminal empire and that's where the next movie comes in i'll say he left the force because of the ridiculousness of the fact that they were waiting for the kingpin guy for joe to get there the cops were like a block away the entire movie in reservoir dogs yeah so the whole time that cops getting did Two cops got murdered while cops were sitting a block away. Anyway, that's his motivation for starting his own criminal syndicate. Yep. As, as to, because uh, he felt bad for those guys and wanted to start his own criminal syndicate. And then you have The Killing Dogs. And that's the third movie. The Killing Dogs is the third movie. Yes. Well, <laughs> one of the movies is going to be called the, the, <laughs> the Reservoir Killing. And that'll be a story about how wait no you already tied Mr. Blonde into it hold on or no you were talking about Mr. Orange huh 
the reservoir killing sounds like they made a like an oil pipeline and it, and it burst open and killed a reservoir. <laughs> like, <laughs> so that'd be that would be directed by Quentin Tarantino, but since it's like an environmental thing, it's star Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, they've worked together. That is true. Uh, okay. I, I don't know what else to do with it. Yeah. Wow. This, our cinematic universes were a little shorter than expected, but I mean, what can you do when both movies killed all of the, almost all of the characters? Yeah. <laughs> and there is like 40 years between one and the other that you can fill in. So it's all pretty much sequel to killing That's prequel not, to Reservoir Dogs. Like, as soon as I saw you go there, I just started laughing. I was like, oh my God, it'd be funny to just like edit it and like me crumbling up a paper and throwing it sound effects like. Well, in that case, I'm sorry for going first. I only jumped. Never mind. I only jumped in first because I thought I was like, I don't really have much beyond just connecting it this way. And I thought you had more, <laughs> but you didn't. <laughs> but that's the logical. That's the only logical link. I guess if we were better cinematic universe writers, <laughs> we'd have something yeah. more. But well, they would have gave us a little bit more to write with. <laughs> you know. I mean, both are pretty bare bones in terms of what the characters are, and they're very focused on either the heist or figuring out, like, who the rat is. That's pretty much the the focus of the movies. Heist or rat. Right. But I will say, I'm kind of looking forward to the season in general. It was nice to watch a pair of, like, for the most part, really good movies by, by like, master filmmakers, and one of which I'd never seen for a GCU. <laughs> Not that we haven't, but it's usually we'll... If we have something like, if we have Hitchcock, we pair it with the deadly bees. Like, you know, <laughs> it's nice to watch like really good movies. <laughs> right. And that'll continue for a while until we hit some movies where it's like, you know, it's time to tie these into some like real bad exploitation movies. So next episode, we're going to, we're, we're hitting Pulp Fiction. We're hitting Pulp Fiction. And actually, I think we're going to tie Pulp Fiction to True Romance. So it's going to be a double Tarantino thing. And I'm going to aim to get Jesse on that episode. So the only thing that's concrete right now is Pulp Fiction, but the other two things are pretty close to concrete. Sweet. Waiting to see that movie. You've never seen Pulp Fiction. I have not seen Pulp Fiction. Whoa, my mind is blown. That's so incredible. I mean, that's really what inspired doing Tarantino this whole season was the fact that you've never seen Pulp Fiction. Pretty amazing. Also, hey, listeners, if you're if you're new to the show, because we picked up uh, quite a few listens on our, our the GCU episode 20 outtake, which kind of blows my mind. And I kind of wish it would have been a better episode. That was literally just an outtake. It was me rambling and then whatever. But <sighs> welcome. Welcome. So I've been Randall Sylvie this whole time. And you can uh, find me on Twitter at Randall Sylvie. Or again, as I usually say, just check out GCU podcast. Uh, for the most part, that's where my personal like TV and movie tweets go. If I feel like mo- tweeting about TV or movies, uh, for the most part, I'll go to GCU podcast. Uh, you can also check me out. Check out I do lots of things. You can basically see everything that I'm on, everything that I'm working on at RandallSylvie.com. It's R-A-N-D-A-L-S-I-L-V-E-Y. How about you, Jasper? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Caronzo Media, which is K-O-R-A-N-S-O Media. And as always, you can hear more of this podcast at GrawlixPodcast.com. Again, that's G-R-A-W-L-I-X-Podcast.com. 
Is that the part we're fading out on, Jasper? <laughs> yes, we're fading out now. We're, oh, oh, this is the part we're fading out on. Yeah, right That's here, the- and then you stop the music real quick. And then continue. I like we stop the music and then don't say anything. <laughs> and also when we don't have something to fade out on, we then talk about the fade out. That seems like a cop out to me. It, it does, but I mean, you know, you just we're talking slightly over music right now, but then, you know, it just it just stops and then we're right here, right here we're talking about the realism that you need to listen to every episode we've ever created. And then the music comes back in. Where's the kissy emoji? Kissy, kissy emoji. Kissy. And a bigger kissy. Okay, there we go. A <laughs> bigger <laughs> 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 Weirdo.